Hi, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This week, we are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Michelle Meckel from the Bioethics and Medical Humanities Department here at Penn State University. We're going to be talking about her journey to this really interesting discipline in higher education, how she works with her students, and the many, many important lessons to be learned from these topics. This is going to be an exciting episode. It's going to be more informational. Keep your ears open, hearts open, and you're going to learn a lot this week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast, the show to help all pre-health students on their journeys to acceptance. I am this week's host, John Moses Bronson, and I am so excited to be welcoming one of our the wonderful friends of our office, Dr. Michelle Meckel. Hi, hello. Hi, how are you? Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing good. It's an honor to be here. Thank you oh so much. Oh, my gosh. An honor. Yeah. We feel so grateful that we made such a good connection with you when we did. It has provided so much value to our students and to us as professionals. We feel so lucky that we got to to build this really wonderful relationship. For those of you that don't know, um, Dr. Meckel will come to our first year seminars and talk about all of these incredible topics because healthcare is a lot more than just giving a diagnosis and some meds or assigning some surgery and saying, check you later, sister. It's so much more than that. And you really help us talk about these things in more than just surface levels. What is that? How did you get to this point? How did you choose this to be your life? Well, first of all, I love being part of the team. And I find at Penn State, it is so easy to become part of so many different wonderful teams. I have the best mm-hmm. collaborators here than I've had anywhere. And I've been to a number of places. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find this path until a bit later. And okay. as we were talking about um, finding your passion and finding your path. Yeah. That is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, when I first embarked on college, mm-hmm. my father encouraged me to be pre-med, right? Uh-huh. Your students. Yep. But there's a thing called calculus. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And me and calculus, not BFFs. So fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I um, took another path and I went to Mizzou and um, okay. got a degree in journalism. Cool. Minors in Spanish and anthropology. Interesting. And from there, that's actually when my healthcare journey began. <laughs> yeah. I became um, an employee of the Missouri Hospital Association. Okay. And was eventually a director there. Okay, cool. And from there, I ended up working in the trifecta, so to speak, of healthcare. Okay. So I worked for the government entities Okay. at HRSA, which is part of Health and Human Services. Okay. And then from there, I ended up at an HMO and oh, wow. on the payer side. So Interesting. The provider side, the payer side, and the regulator side. And now I'm Interesting. on the educator side. Um, I, after those wonderful experiences, decided it was time to go back to school. Uh-huh. And I got, because uh, one degree wasn't good enough. <laughs> they never is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still in the education field, mm-hmm. right? So um, I got a master's degree in uh, business administration, okay. one in health administration, and then also the law degree. Mm-hmm. I thought I was bound back to industry. Interesting. Healthcare industry, specifically. But from there, I got an opportunity to clerk for Missouri Supreme Court judge mm-hmm. and from there, I got an opportunity to do a Fulbright. Oh, cool. Canada, comparing the healthcare systems. Interesting. Yeah. What did you learn? I learned many, many things. <laughs> I learned, among other things, that despite what everyone says, there is no perfect healthcare mm-hmm. system. Yeah. Our system is broken in many, many ways, as we know very well. Right? Yeah. We all know very well. Um, but we tend to get the most novel treatments, the most novel inventions, the most novel medications. Mm-hmm. Other places don't get that. We also 
have more timely access if we mm -hmm. have coverage to care. In mm -hmm. other places, there is a different kind of rationing than we have here. Mm -hmm. Here, rationing is done by whether or not you have insurance or financial resources. Mm -hmm. In other places, it's done by age, by geography, mm -hmm. things like that. And so those systems are not perfect either. Yeah. So that's what I learned from that experience, which is very useful to bring back home. Yeah. Much like with humans, every, every system, every person has their demons. It's how you deal with your demons that matters. Right. We have a lot of work. To yeah. Demons mm -hmm. and, and the demons seem to change every day. Oh, yes. Just read the newspaper. And grow and wear new hats yes. and put on little mustache <laughs> disguises. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. So after the Fulbright, what happened then? So after the Fulbright, I had the most wonderful opportunity. Mm -hmm. I ended up running uh, two bioethics centers. Okay. Chicago Kent okay. um, University cool. and IIT uh, University in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And that is when I found my passion. Yeah. And it's been that ever since. Um, from there, I went to teach law school. And oh, interesting. I was appointed in a medical humanities department. Interesting. And teach health law to attorneys and to physicians, um, residents. Mm -hmm in a way that brought them together to understand that medicine is much of an art as it is a science. Hmm. And that was a tremendous experience. I did that for about 15 years. And then, Shazam, I ended up here. So yeah, what brought you to Penn State? Was there a particular part of the opportunity here that was extra exciting for you? So. Believe it or not, my sister mm -hmm. saw the position that I'm in right now, which is Associate Director of the Bioethics Program, mm -hmm. and I'm also an Associate Teaching Professor of Bioethics, I am uh, in Humanities, I am course appointed in uh, the Medical Humanities Department in Hershey, okay. I'm also affiliated with the law school here, and I'm affiliated with the Rock Ethics Institute, Dang. and I love it all. You get to wear all of your hats yeah. all at once, just stack them up. <laughs> That's exactly, and my sister's like, this is perfect, this is for you, and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm happy where I am. She's like, no, no, you're applying, and then I met the folks here, mm -hmm. and honestly, I knew. Yeah. I was like, I'm home. That's amazing. And then I got here, and I met the students. Mm -hmm. And that makes it. Yeah. I love mentoring. I love teaching. Yeah. It's great. I feel so lucky. And I, I talked about this in another episode. I feel particularly lucky being at Penn State. We get such an interesting cross-section of students. You know, I – one of the focuses that I, you know, have taken on in like some of the doctoral work that I've done is, is around rural sociology. What a better place. We get so many of these rural students who are bringing in such a different understanding and way of meaning making of the world. It's fascinating to understand and see the world through their eyes because I'm also from a rural place, but I'm also like very queer and that has colored my experience in a very specific way. So we just have really cool students and it's not just those students that make Penn State cool. It's just we have a nice mix, I think. Exactly. And that extends to staff, that extends to faculty. Mm -hmm. All of the intersectionalities that everyone brings mm. to bear here, that's what makes the place amazing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, like I said, I feel very, very lucky. So we made it to Penn State. What? How long have you been at Penn State? I got here right before the pandemic. Hey. Yeah. Exciting. It was. <laughs> what a time. <laughs> it was exciting to be in a new place, in a new everything, um, and then get locked in your house for you know a couple years. Yeah. Um, but... It didn't feel like that because mm -hmm. the place is so vibrant and there's so many opportunities mm -hmm. and the students, right? That was a time when I could really reach out and make a difference for students who were struggling yeah. with the change the way we all were. Um, mm -hmm. And because that issue is in my wheelhouse of bioethics, you know, pandemics, bioethics, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, mm -hmm. Same with the health humanities. I felt like this is an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. So I was able to, with uh, Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at the medical school, mm -hmm. 
co-PI, a project called Viral Imaginations, and bring the health humanities and an outlet for people to share their creative responses, to struggle, to processing, to empathy, to care, to mm-hmm. all, to fear, to all of those emotions. Yeah, I, I didn't know that you were part of that actually. I, so I used to be the academic coordinator for the BSMBA program, and one of my students interned with you. Excellent. So you probably know her. I'm not going to like drop her name on this podcast, but we can talk about her later. She's lovely. She had a wonderful experience. That is, and that's a thing. That's a that is a way that I can make a difference in the lives of students by being here. Yeah. I can work one-on-one mm-hmm. with students. Um, we can follow their passions. Mm-hmm. We can help them develop skills that they otherwise didn't imagine didn't have. Yeah. And then I have lifelong you know, mentees who become friends. Yeah. What I love about Penn State, and it feels counter. When people think of Penn State, they, they see this mega institution. And they really think of like all of our students sort of like falling into being a number. I feel like, maybe not in every office, but in a lot of offices, we do a really good job of countering that narrative about what it means to be a Penn Stater and what our love and support of our students looks like. And that is absolutely true. In fact, one um, a member of my students in the bioethics and medical humanities minor, mm-hmm. which we offer through the bioethics program, mm-hmm. says that to everyone. Yeah. Um, they say that because they're like, this is a small home and a small program within this big, fabulous institution with all mm. of these opportunities. So it's the best of both worlds yeah. because they can be in programs like pre-health. They can be in programs like bioethics and medical humanities minor and have a cohort and have people who know them, have people who know them by name, have people who know what they've done last mm-hmm. summer and still be part of this way big we are family. yeah it's so it, it, it has been like one of the biggest surprises in me coming to university park to work because i originally started working at the altoona campus i started at a commonwealth and so much smaller institution loved it I was actually quite nervous when i first came to university park because i assumed based on what my students had experienced that that was sort of the pervasive experience but it wasn't a universal. I think a lot of my students didn't know how to get connected to the right places. And so now, as a professional that works here, I have a better understanding of where these students are coming from. And you know, I have colleagues that do specific outreach to those students, and I think that they're quite good at it. But I can always give the context of like, I m- might not have seen my student find this here's some ways that maybe we can get that information more in the hands of them where they're at. It's, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a great, it's a great, great, great place. So I have a lot of students that are very interested in this minor. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What it looks like? Who is it for? So let me start with who is it for, right? Mm-hmm. It That's is, the base question. It's for anyone who's curious about the big questions. Mm. And we have so many big questions to deal with right now that it'd be kind of surprising that there would be someone out there who's a student who's not interested in at least a big question. Whether that big question is what are we going to do about uh, sustainability and food supplies and the climate, Mm -hmm. or whether it's what are we going to do about gun control, Mm -hmm. or what are we going to do about health disparities Mm -hmm. and social justice. There are so many of these questions, Mm -hmm. and these are the questions that are addressed through bioethics. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in the big questions, if you want to be a better steward of world that you're going to inherit and be a leader of, it's for you. If you're going into the practice of medicine, Mm -hmm. so as I said, I come from, you know, that side of things, right? The the medical industry. And there's not a day that goes by where you don't address a bioethical issue. Yeah. So it's part of your toolkit that you walk out into the world as a professional with. Yeah. Um, It's also for folks who are pre-law because there's a huge thing called health law mm-hmm. it's folks for folks who are nursing um pre-pa pre-med uh bbh pre-health management pre-veterinary um, science mm-hmm. any of those folks yeah so i love this and 
a, a big part of why I love this is because, you know, for those of you that don't know or haven't attended this, we started bringing Dr. Meckel in for our multiple mini interview mock night because for schools that are looking to ascertain applicants' soft skills within the health professions, this is seen as the best way to accomplish this. And so could we handle some of the questions as pre-health advisors? Yeah, sure. Will we do it to the level and skill and depthness of you? No. We wanted to bring in the experts because this is how schools are evaluating your readiness for medical education. So if you're not thinking about these big big questions. Maybe you don't want to do the minor, but you should still be asking yourself these big questions. Yeah. And so even if a student isn't wanting to commit to the minor, what are some ways that they might be able to engage with these big questions through your work? Right. So there are many tracks. So mm-hmm. The first track is the minor. And the minor includes doing a course called Philosophy 132 or Bioethics 100. Mm-hmm. And that is an introduction to bioethics. Yep. So you could just take that course and start it. Yeah. Or you could take a course called Philosophy 432, which is also about to be listed as Bioethics 432, which Great. is a course that I teach, which mm-hmm. is Healthcare and Medical Ethics. Mm-hmm. And I have most of the students in that class as pre-med folks, right? Mm-hmm. Or nursing folks, or pre-PA folks, um, or pre-health um, administration folks. Mm-hmm. So. That class is super popular with students like that. It also counts toward the minor, mm-hmm. right? As three credits and an ethics course and a 400 level course. <laughs> um, you could take a course, a course like nursing, um, death and dying. That's an amazing class. Yes, that's a perfect class. So you could take one-off courses or you could take a series of these courses, all of which count toward the minor, mm-hmm. and you only need 18 hours to meet the minor, which includes the... 132 class mm-hmm. and then a capstone course with mm-hmm. me um which you really drive the bus oh interesting and we can talk about that in a minute yeah and those are some ways you get involved another way you can get involved is participating in the mock interviews mm-hmm. um by reading by um monitoring the news yeah by reading a um, series of books on bioethics and people can just send me an email or come see me or whatever um, watching movies it's all around us yeah it's there if you want to engage with it I feel like if someone wanted to like peruse like maybe a good um, smorgasbord of things that they might want to read on these topics where might you suggest they go to look for that so a couple places that person can go so one they could send me an email mm-hmm. um, two, <laughs> that seems the direct route exactly they could send any of you in pre-health an email they could google bioethics and um novels bioethics and fiction mm-hmm. bioethics and non-fiction they could go to the hastings center they could read wired magazine they could go to love wired there are a million places that mm-hmm. you can go and a lot of them are free mm-hmm. Yeah, my one of my neighbors, uh, her son really loved Wired magazine, and she just hasn't had the heart to stop the subscription since he moved out. So now every few months I get a stack of Wired magazine. And that's a big gift. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's so interesting. I've been really, really enjoying it. This past um, issue, on the surface, it didn't sound like it had too much to deal with this, but it was an interview with Keanu Reeves all about artificial intelligence, specifically related to like the matrix. It was fascinating because the the author was ha- was talking about how like Keanu Reeves had talked about chat GPT and how it might be taking over and like how this writer should be worried because can we just have AI generate this article for us. And at first the writer was like, haha, that's funny. And then two days later, a huge article comes out talking about how close an AI generated article was to certain types of writing in, in journalism. Because it picks up on algorithms. Yeah. It's um, a learning system mm-hmm. and it's not limited to journalism. It's not limited to fiction writing. Mm-hmm. It's also entered into creative arts, um, visual arts, 
Yeah. And it's going to enter into medicine, right? And this can either be the physician's friend or the physician's foe. Mm -hmm. And these are among the topics. I just got a new course uh, approved. Oh, cool. On, um, what is it? Ethics, Society, and Science Fiction. Oh, cool. I'm a huge science fiction junkie. Mm -hmm. And so much of it deals with bioethics. Yeah. And new technologies and mm -hmm. how we handle those technologies mm -hmm. and we can explore these technologies before they happen mm -hmm. one of so i used to work in the college of engineering many years ago and one of the coolest first year seminars that i saw is taught through the engineering science department and it's called star trek ethics so they talk about the experience of being a first some like first year student but they also introduce all these cool technologies and what are the ethical and moral implications of them right it seems like a transporter would be so great but that brings up a lot of ethical issues absolutely it's do you have to provide consent what does consent look like what is who can provide consent for something like teleportation do you, do you need to have permission of the people that you're teleporting into like it's great that Scott Scotty can beam you up, but Scotty had to beam you down there. <laughs> and who on that planet gave you permission? What does that look like? Something we just took for granted when we watched Star Trek. And that is one of the things that this course addresses from um, so cool. <laughs> you know, um, another approach, right? Mm -hmm. Because we look at it not from a colonial perspective, but interesting post-colonial perspective. So a lot of our authors uh -huh. are voices that hadn't been part of old school science fiction. Interesting. We've got these new, diverse, intersectional voices, short stories that look at it from the people that got beamed down to mm -hmm. rather than the beamers. Ooh, fascinating. Oh, so, so cool. So I, this last year, I started teaching a course. Um, it's a version of first year seminar for exploratory science students. So they know they want to do science, but they're not sure what. And so I was like, well, how can I get them exposed to a lot of science without like boring them to tears about descriptions on the bulletin? So I based it around existential risk and exploratory technologies. And so every class is one part understanding a different scientific discipline, learning some of the scientific concepts that exist, but also talking about the more ethical implications of them. My, one of my favorite episodes to teach, episodes, classes to teach is about extraterrestrial life. It's so neat because obviously we are looking at from a Earth-centric perspective, but like, you know, we kind of should be in this circumstance. So we talk about things like Dyson spheres and why perhaps we're not observing and intelligent, and we say that in huge quotation marks, because we are looking at it from a very humanistic perspective of what intelligent life looks like. Why are we not observing that? What could it look like? What does it probably not look like, but we also don't know. We have our perspective of what technology looks like, right? Which is very like wires and zeros and ones. And that's even before we get into quantum computing, which that's a wild on its own. But that's just one class. So we talk about it. We look at it from a historical perspective. We talk about places like SETI and like what is the current research being done? That's been one of my favorite classes to teach because these big questions are everywhere. And this is the most exciting thing I've heard today. And there's been so many things <laughs> today because I just worked on a set of guidelines from last. Um, so let me back up. Penn State has a center that mm -hmm. deals with research for extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And whenever we talk about SETI, which is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about it in terms of intelligence and in terms of life. Mm -hmm. um, so it tells us as the seekers about ourselves and what we're looking for. Interesting. We want something that is either as smart as us or smarter than us. Or mm -hmm. Somehow we classify as worthy because of intelligence. Interesting. When you look at how intelligence is being utilized and manipulated mm -hmm. over history, over mm -hmm. time, 
colonial uh, entities. Yeah. And singularly defined by science, right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, there are many intelligences. Yeah. And learning about that by studying insects and animals and even tree systems mm -hmm. and um, mushroom systems. Mm -hmm. So last summer I had the opportunity to participate with a fabulous group of colleagues to talk about with the SETI scientists from across everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, what are the moral issues that arise and how can we establish guidelines mm -hmm. in terms of both our search mm -hmm. and our emissions? And we came up with a set of guidelines, nine of them, for that. And then they were just recently published in a journal. Mm -hmm. And this summer, we're going to begin looking at and creating a micro-credential on the moral status of intelligence in terms of SETI. And it's the most exciting thing because the thing about it is, is what if we never find anything out there? That's okay, too. Yeah. It should serve as a morality tale. <laughs> what we're doing over here. Yeah. Looking outwards and thinking about what things could look like elsewhere should be giving us a lot of insight as to, ooh, perhaps we should be looking inwards. Oh, fascinating. All right. This is a huge tangent, but maybe we need to talk about my class in the fall because yes. I'd love to have you visit on that day. Because those students that I worked with in that class are doing such diverse work that I don't know that they would have done before. I have this one student that is looking at doing a planetary sciences and biotechnology double major and wants to also make sure they have the prerequisites to take um, astrobiology. And I'm just like, this is the sort of brain I need in the world. Exactly. These are the people that I need solving problems that are saying, I can't have a single skill set. I need to have more than this. And if I can get them to see the value of what you can also bring to them, my gosh, we'll just be in such a better place as a society and as a world. That's exactly. Then, you know, we can step back and be like, hey, these people are so prepared. Uh -huh. Take it away. Because oh, I know I can't solve the world's problems, and nor do I feel that is my job. I feel my job is to help pre prepare students to be those problem solvers in the future because I'm not a genius. I'm very smart in many ways. And when you talked about multiple levels of intelligences, and multiple different types, that's not the way in which I'm going to be super intelligent. I ha certainly have a level of super intelligence. Just it's very clear to me that you have very specific super intelligences. That doesn't mean we have to do all of these things. Like I might not have been as helpful in that SETI conversation, but you know what I can do? I can take what I've learned from talking with you, give that information to students who they can then take it forward. And as I said, calculus, no, but by having a conversation with the scientists mm -hmm. who, you know, are way beyond calculus, uh -huh. and they can think about these issues in a way different way than they ever had before. What's... I was actually going to tell you this earlier, too. Uh, nowadays, calculus is no longer required for medical school. <laughs> you just need college-level math and statistics, preferably biostatistics, which I'm sure you're like, oh, I could have managed that. <laughs> the big universe put me on the right path. So it's I'm not, exactly. Not <laughs> well, good. I mean, and we don't actually see any quantifiable differences in acceptances between students who have calculus versus non-calculus in certain majors. But yeah, in the uh, the majors in the College of Health and Human Development, no statistical differences in uh, the t the highest level of math that they took when controlling for GPA. Nice. Which was like a very good way to tell students, like, don't try and shove a square peg in a round hole. You don't have to be talented at calculus to be a wonderful clinician anymore. Very true. Yeah. Now, some schools will prefer it, but it's a very small number. Unless you want to go to Harvard or Stanford, like, maybe that's just not your path. <laughs> okay. So we have this work with the Bioethics Medical Humanities program, and you said that you work with the Rock Ethics Institute. What does that look like? So the Rock Ethics Institute is a pretty statewide organization. 
organization. Penn State really didn't mean just BP, you know. It's Commonwealth. Commonwealth, exactly, as well. And so basically it brings together colleagues who are interested in their area of study and ethics. Cool. It brings us all together for wonderful collaborations and conversations, and it makes these great connections. Um, so we, um, through the rock, handle the health component and offer the bioethics colloquium on Monday mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, but other entities offer other colloquiums, um, such as data science mm-hmm. and ethics. Data and, science, what a wild field. And uh, talking about chat GPT, these things marry right together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've met tremendous colleagues mm-hmm. through there entered into great collaborations. Um, it's led to publications. It's led to uh, symposiums. It's led to um, grant applications. So it brings together these disciplines, and together everybody is stronger. I think that's one of the big things that I really want to push my students to do is to not silo themselves in a specific area. Because a lot of schools these days are looking for interdisciplinary thinkers. And if they can demonstrate the ability to do that, does does The Rock still do their case competitions? Um, I, 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 because I thought that they were in a state of panic before the pandemic, and I don't right. know. I, I, since the pandemic, I don't know that we have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they have a uh, student award, Ooh, cool. uh, stand-up awards mm-hmm. that are given out every year. Mm-hmm. I know that they work with different student cohorts in different ways. Cool. Um, but they are not a uh, degree-granting entity, Yeah. Um, but there are many opportunities for both professionals and students to be involved with them. Very cool. Because it's intersectional, interdisciplinary, it just, it touches on everything. There's no limitation on what you can do. You know, oh gosh, I bet that's such a cool dynamic place to be doing stuff through. Is that how the SETI thing came about or was that external? So I um, had heard that the uh, Penn State SETI Center was coming when I first got here. Cool. And when uh, the pandemic was easing up, I reached out to uh, Jason Wright, who okay. is uh, the head of that. Mm-hmm. And we had coffee and we started talking and it was super exciting. And that's just how that all worked out. But Penn State is like that. It's like that for staff, for faculty, mm-hmm. and for students. Because if there's somebody you want to talk to here on Penn State, campus um any of the campuses you just can send them an email mm-hmm. and shazam yeah it's wild that has been like one of the the nice gifts is that most if not almost every single person i've ever worked with wants to do whatever they can for students and, and sometimes we have to set some boundaries because we are one single human there's only so many hours in the day but we will at least give you something we won't just like shove a door in your face right if you find the right people we are going to do what we can to really enhance your experience absolutely and it's two-way street yeah the more engaged mm-hmm. students are and the more focused and directed um the more engaged faculty mm-hmm. will be in all of um i have a student who is uh, one of your pre-health students um, and she came to me early on in her undergraduate career and emailed me and we set up a phone call and she asked me what the hot topics in bioethics and medicine were. I mentioned one of them and from that moment she took it and ran with it. And that topic became a focus of her bioethics capstone because she mm-hmm. was the minor. It became a focus of her um, work that was entered into the undergraduate research exhibition. Wow. It became a focus of her work that she took it on herself to apply to professional conferences with. It became the focus of her um, overall honors thesis. Mm-hmm. And we worked together closely for three years now because mm-hmm. she's passionate about that and self-directed. And 
it's an area that I work with, and so it's just been a natural collaboration and mentorship. Yeah, that's that's so wonderful to hear, because I. I, I see these students like as they're really like doing the work of, of getting ready to apply. And when I see someone that has like clearly found a passion and has invested in it over time and in multiple ways, I just know that that's a student who understands himself in a way that is going to provide them with a wonderful life. Because there's so many different you know, we talked about how interdisciplinary ethics is. That's something you can carry with you for the rest of your life. We know that our system is broken. You know how you fix it? You talk about it and you work through potential solutions. Like you said, there is no perfect healthcare system. Our healthcare system isn't wonderful and all of these other countries will tell us that, but we can also find flaws in their system. So it's not like we can just be like copy and paste we, we cannot copy our neighbor's homework. <laughs> and that's another place where ethics comes into play. Yeah. Because that's another thing I learned from the Canadian system and our system. Our values as nations are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the Canadian value that underlies everything is equity. Mm-hmm. The value that underlies American society is independence mm-hmm. and you know, liberty. Mm-hmm. And you can't copy a system that works under one value system mm-hmm. and apply it in the other value system yeah. because it won't function the way it's designed. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't have good alignment. It's some. I think that's a problem in a lot of broken systems is it has poor alignment. Hmm, interesting. Is there is there any other countries that you think have, and this is like just me being like really nosy, nebby, and curious, any other countries that you have, think have really interesting healthcare systems that are well-designed for their values? I definitely believe that the Canadian system was perfect for the Canadian system's values. The mm-hmm. French system and um, many of the European systems are well-designed for their values. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can even look at it from an organ donation perspective, mm-hmm. right? Um, in some systems where medicine is socialized and there's a very strong belief in equality and equity, their organ donation systems are opt out rather than opt in. Interesting. So here, to be an organ donor, you have to make that decision and take certain steps mm-hmm. to ensure that you will be that, right? Mm-hmm whether it's through signing a driver's license, um, signing up on the registry, uh, telling, of course, your family members and your medical providers, um, putting it in your documents, such as your health directive documents. In other systems, that's not the case at all. Hmm. In fact, you would have to sign forms and take steps to remove yourself from being an organ donor. Yeah, we talk about cultural differences a lot. My undergraduate degree is actually in business, and so we had to take intercultural business. And that was a great way to understand how cultural differences are reflected in business practices. I think it focused a little bit too much on on like nuts and bolts, and I think we could have really benefited. This is also me like decades out from undergrad critiquing something that is was a relic of its time and I'm sure it has evolved past that but it was a lot more nuts and bolts as opposed to understanding the underlying ideas and concepts behind things and I feel like those are the bigger questions they're harder to answer but there's so much more value to work towards answers on and that is what something like biographies of humanities can give a person mm-hmm. it gives them the tools do the analytical thinking. Mm-hmm. It gives them the tools to examine narratives. It gives them the tools to examine, as you said, what underlies something. Mm-hmm. And then to answer questions or to raise questions or to propose solutions. Yeah. What do you think are like the big question, the, some of the biggest questions in 
healthcare these days? Answer that question broadly. That's very fair. It was a broad question. <laughs> I, I think that um, one of the huge questions that we're facing is health disparities. Mm -hmm. And that is a social justice question. Mm -hmm. And that comes straight down to systemic racism and injustice. And that's a huge healthcare question. It's bigger than healthcare itself, obviously, mm -hmm. but that is probably number one on the list. Um, other questions or other issues that are on the list, reproductive freedoms. Mm -hmm. That right now is huge. Just last week, we now have two courts that have both um, said different things mm -hmm. in terms of the status of the, what is known as the morning after pill. Mm -hmm. um, we have giant questions as to bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Those bodies being female bodies, those bodies being trans bodies, and we see that playing out in the laws that are targeted toward gender-affirming care mm -hmm. for youth. Um, we, and so that's another huge question. We have so many of these big questions which go far beyond healthcare yeah. right now. Who do you think is most important to be at the table for these conversations? Who are the voices that you see represented in these conversations? And which voices do you feel might be missing? Right. So I think often the people who are impacted mm -hmm. by these ultimate decisions are frequently missing. Mm -hmm. And they're missing for the same reasons that they're being impacted by someone else's decision because of how the system is designed. The system um, has so much injustice in it mm -hmm. that these folks aren't invited to the table. These folks are, the table isn't where these folks are. Mm -hmm. um, the table isn't set up and the dialogue isn't set up in a way that these folks can meaningfully participate. And that's injustice in itself. Yeah. Um, or these folks are too young to meaningfully participate mm -hmm. um, in all of these instances. And that's an injustice. So we have to have much broader representation. Mm -hmm. And that is starting to change. Good. It's slow. Mm -hmm. Very slow. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I, I see this sort of reflected in the work of Temple in their medical school. They've done some really interesting things that I'm very appreciative of. One of the things that they changed was there's generations of reasons that the people of North Philadelphia do not trust medical providers and even more specifically Temple. Temple has moved beyond just like trying to fix it but to owning the mistakes that they've made and being very transparent about the history of that. And to help combat that, they said, well – Where's the sort of like first place that we can make change? Well, we can change the types of students that we're bringing into our program. So at most medical schools, when you interview, you can expect to meet with a faculty member. It's very common to meet with other students. Temple's the only school that I've ever heard of that does this. They have a community member that sits on the admissions committee and meets with students and talks about how they feel about the meaningfulness of community engagement and how they might reach out to actual members of the community because that's where it's going to start is with these new professionals with new ideas of what it means to provide care to who in what ways and those are the students that are going to help us answer these big questions and that's really exciting and I'm so happy that a school has like put a system in place that brings them to the table and their voice is equally weighted in admissions decisions. So it's not a phantom voice. It's not just sort of like, you know, empty action. It's action with real consequence and real results. And they're seeing some differences in the sorts of folks that they're providing admissions invitations to. It's really exciting. 
It also helps me as an advisor try and find the right students that I think would really succeed at a place like Temple because I do have a lot of students that are really focused on community. Not all of our students, and I'm sure you see this too, not all of our students are equally focused on the same things, nor should they be. Please be focused on the things that you want to be focused on. It just means that you might be a good fit somewhere else. And and building on what you said about Temple, they also have taken a different approach to bioethics, Mm -hmm. one that's super exciting. Mm -hmm. They basically have um, established what is known as urban bioethics, Mm -hmm. center that focuses on that. The medical students run through that center, and it is community-focused. It's a concurrent master's degree that they can take. So it is a suite of courses, and it's – I loved getting to meet the director of that program. It's very well designed. It's very community focused and community supported. It's a lot of it is coming from their voices. That's those are the sorts of changes that I want to see in the world. And I get so excited when I send students off to Temple. I had a student that I worked with quite extensively last year um, who has you know, she actually left a PhD program in biology because she didn't feel it was, it was a good fit for her. Um, she felt like as a woman, she wasn't always welcomed at the table. And she felt really seen with how they ran their interviews and how they view their role in the community because that's how she views her role in the community. And she originally got waitlisted. She was devastated. Now, she had an offer to another medical school. It was a very good medical. I mean, I think almost all medical schools are very good, but it wasn't as good of a fit. And so we talked through how to approach that and how to address that. And she did those things. And then she got an offer shortly afterwards. And she's in her M2 year now. And last I heard, thrilled by it. Um, you know, we talked about Dolly Parton a lot in our conversations. We always started by talking about Dolly and then we moved on to everything else. I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan. But when we find these synergies and we find the students wanting to ask the right big questions, we can find the right places for them to live. Because there's lots of big questions to ask in medicine. They don't want to bring in students that aren't asking questions. It's what they want. So this is just training you to understand what are the big questions that you want to be able to think about and answer. And you don't have to have the answer. Right? Mm-hmm. You just have to be able to identify the question, think about what underlies that question and why, mm-hmm. and where might we look for the answer? Yeah, I knowing where to look. Who to include in that journey of asking those questions. Because, you know, going back to sort of this evolution of the discussion on on with SETI here at Penn State, if you hadn't reached out, would those questions have been asked? Perhaps not, maybe, but perhaps not. Sometimes we retreat to what's comfortable for us. Of course, that's human nature. Yes, and so sometimes we don't want to ask certain questions or face certain possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the more we're with people who are like us Mm -hmm. and think like us, the more we're able to avoid that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't say that I made a million friends, (laughs) but I made some fabulous friends. That's so worthwhile. (laughs) And if nothing else, I made a lot of people think. Good. And if that's not the goal, I don't know what it is. It's certainly the goal that I, I feel like we share in education. I won't always provide answers to all of my students' questions. That's not always my job. Sometimes, yes, I have really specific pieces of information that I think is important for you to know. Sometimes it's about asking you the right questions because you're very smart and intelligent people and you don't need me to answer this for you. You just need me to help you think about it differently and push you forward. And in my caption class just this week, mm-hmm. we talked about various things. And I asked them for the answer because I don't know, mm-hmm. right? And they may not know either. But maybe together we can figure out who might know or how what might you know. Yeah. I think a lot of times 
especially with how we've been conditioned to understand information, we think that all questions have a quick, easy answer to them. We have a lot of our students have grown up with computers in their pockets. I learned to type on a typewriter. So like you get me, right? Like I learned how to use technology before it was even reflective of what we see today, right? I had to learn how to like, my first computer in a classroom had command prompt to be able to log in. So some of our students don't even know, right? At what that even looks like. You had to know like shifts and slashes and <laughs> slight coding to be just be able to log into the computer. My goodness, in high school when Wagon or Oregon Trail came about, I thought that we, we were just living in the Star Trek future already. And now Oregon Trail is like nothing. Right? And so the the access to this information has conditioned us to think that these answers are easy to get. And that people in roles like ours were just going to know everything. And the reality is sometimes you are more complex than a simple answer can ever be. And while we may not know the specific answer, we know where to look. We can help guide you. We can help ask you the right questions. And that serves you way better. You become less of an Ask Jeeves service and more of an analysis system. Exactly. And that is the thing that makes the difference between where computers can take over mm -hmm. and where we still need the person. Yeah. Yeah, we, we talked about this idea of chat GPT. We got nervous about it when we first heard about it because we're like, what if our students start using it for secondary essays or for personal statements? And we played around with it with some uh, information from some students. And at first we were like, oh, well, this doesn't sound terrible. But then we were like, oh, this is super generic, though. There's nothing. There's no heart beating behind this. I would not think more positively or more negative about a student. It ends up being neutral. And it doesn't tell a student's story in a meaningful way. And it's that human component that's missing. You can feed it tons of information, but its heart will never beat. Right. And that is because that thing is not out there in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not a being in the world. Yeah. And uh, that's what's being discussed right now in uh, robot ethics and in AI ethics is that um, when do these things become sentient? And there are even things like DNA computing right now, mm -hmm. trying to use organoids, uh, brain organoids to do computing. And so moral status has become a question. But I think until those things understand being in the world, mm -hmm. they don't reach that state. Yeah. We will always need humans. And, you know, right now oh, in my pre-medicine first year seminar that I teach, um, we read a book called um, Every Patient Tells a Story. It's by Dr. Lisa Sanders. Um, she used to write a column for the New York Times, and she was actually the technical advisor on the show House, which... <laughs> if you want to talk about moral and ethics, my goodness, that's uh, like an encyclopedia of problems. Um, but one of the classes that I have is a discussion about part of that book, and it talks about um, like medical computing and using the internet and things like WebMD and we can feed these things, all of the information in the world. It doesn't have the skills that a human does. And what's interesting is that even in today's world, they talked about how some physicians have been able to like use it in their practice. It's particularly valuable in places where things are like so far outside of the scope of normalcy. So this place in St. Louis used this um, like computer system to figure out that this person had this like rare disease that's only seen in like this one region of Southeast Asia. And 
it manifests and looked like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but its treatment is different and the long-term impacts are different. And they couldn't figure out why they were doing what they were supposed to be doing over here, but it wasn't having any results and it was actually making things worse. So they put it into the system and said, hey, I don't suppose within the past two years you were somewhere in this region. They were like, oh, yeah, I went there on a work trip for three days, not even thinking about it because it was such a short period of time. And that was the one piece of information that they needed because it – I think for whatever reason, it, it took time to like manifest and that's just how it works. But this person was almost like not able to move like a major part of their body. They were, they had like mentally prepared themselves to be quadriplegic and need all this kind of assistive stuff. And now through like physical therapy and the right treatment plan, they are upright and they're walking again. And that's a great um, narrative, mm-hmm. right? and, uh, example of narrative ethics, even. Yeah. Um, and how we can use the systems to augment and to ask the right questions. Yeah. And one of the questions we need to ask is what data are we feeding the system? Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure we're feeding the system data that don't um, continue to exacerbate and perpetrate social injustice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the system can find information. It doesn't always know how to ask the right questions. That is a human skill that we that is a much harder thing to train a system to do because it takes a truly human mind to ask those types of questions. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the profession is that AI can never get smart enough because it doesn't know what to ask. And it's also why I get very concerned when stu- when uh, some of my uh, neighbors, family, friends are like, oh, I just ask uh, WebMD what's wrong. And I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a that's a flawed system. Um, but yeah, I also follow that up with like giving them a list of symptoms. And I say, use the Internet to try and figure out what's wrong. <laughs> it can be a helpful tool, but it's a double edged sword. But then go see someone. Yeah, Yeah. because things have non-traditional manifestations all the time. And so it's it's a fun class. I love it. My students really loved it this past fall. It was was a good – it was a really, really good class. So very exciting stuff. Okay, so we're sort of getting close to about the time where we'd want to end the episode. So let's end by me asking you if – I am a student that loves to ask these big questions. I want to email Dr. Meckel to get involved. What, if it's a really busy time of year or um, perhaps um, Dr. Meckel's on vacation, what are some things that they can do in the intermediary before getting connected to you and your wonderful program? First thing you can do is go to the bioethics program website Great. and go to the undergraduate page, <laughs> and that is bioethics.psu.edu. You can also check out our Twitter feed because I post every day exciting things, or at least what I think are exciting things, um, that are happening in the world, sometimes horrifying things, um, that relate to bioethics. We have an Instagram um, also uh, under our PSU Bioethics. We have a Facebook page. Um, So you can also read about some very cool things our students have done on the Bioethics website Mm -hmm. on the news page. So you can also email me, which is mmekel at psu.edu. I may not respond to you tomorrow. I may not respond to you until next week, but I will respond to you. All right. So I will go ahead and I'll put links to all those things in in the show notes for this episode. So listeners, if you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You'll find all of this stuff in the show notes. All right. Michelle, it's been such a pleasure. I love every time we get to interact. It's so wonderful to like, you know, be in community with people that also like the big questions and are also comfortable not knowing all the answers. And still feel like those questions are still worth discussion and exploration. I think we're going to try and have you back to maybe do some, some deeper dives on some of these conversations because we know that these are questions that are going to be asked of our students in interviews while you're in school. 
And if we can sort of give you a primer to some of the really interesting parts of this, or to at least give you a primer for discussion, it's going to A, help you, B, give you some more context to the big questions, and C, help you understand that it's so much more complex. But there's fun in complexity. Absolutely. There's fun in not knowing. Mm -hmm. John. Thank you so much. This has been an utter joy. Oh, You're good. A rock star. Oh, thanks. Casey, a podcast star. Oh, my gosh. Thanks. So, oh, this makes me so happy. <laughs> and I cannot wait for the next opportunity. Yay. That makes me so happy. All right, folks. We will see you soon again. Remember, this is a weekly podcast. So, we'll see you next week on the Penn State Pre Health Podcast. The Penn State Pre-Health Podcast is a production of the Pre-Health Advising Office and the Everly College of Science at Penn State University. It is produced, edited, and promoted by the Pre-Health Advising Team. The views, opinions, and advice shared during this podcast are that of the hosts and any guests only and do not necessarily reflect the best advice for every student at every institution for every health profession. This is a nonprofit podcast made for the purpose of better serving pre health students across the university system.